<laughs> right? That we shouldn't use sharp objects. Oh, I don't have that back TV isn't on. Sorry, pardon me. I've got a little trick. Um, uh, constellations, uh, constellations which we all know and love. If you, I'm, I'm a star nut. I love them. Oh, what constellation is this? I put the name on it. I was going to quiz you, and then I forgot. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Pretty much the one that almost everybody knows, because you have those three stars in the middle that are uh, Orion's belt. They're easy to see. Um, you know, it's uh, right now in the early, I think in the, in the morning, or is it late? Very, I can't remember. I know it's out. I can't remember if it's morning or night. But um, in the, anyway, the, the point of this is, sorry, is that these stars, though they look like they're all right next to each other, are not. They are far, far, far away from each other. Uh, this Big bright one uh, up there at the top corner, I think that's Orion's shoulder, is 400 light years away. That's a, that's a long ways away. Uh, but 400, but let's, if we compare them, then this guy here is, oh, that one up top is Betelgeuse, by the way. That first one, 400, that brightest one, that's Betelgeuse. The one, I had to look, the, I don't have them all memorized, that's Alnitak. You know, remember that one. You could impress your friend and say, hey, look, there's Alan Attack. What I always like to say is, like, there's Uranus, but you can't, can't say that anymore. Um, and that's 800 light years away. Right? So that's double the distance. And by the way, 100 light years is 588 trillion miles. 100 light years. 588 trillion miles. So it takes the light, so one of these, two of these are, like, they're super close, not him in the middle. 800 and 900, so well, they're right next to each other. It takes light 1.6 million years to travel 100 light years. 1.6 million years. So the light you're seeing from that guy in the end, who is Mintaka, anyway, the guy on the outside, it takes the light from that star 1.6 million years longer to get to your eye than the light from, what's his name over there, Alan Attack. Uh, they're really far away from each other. But this is actually a wonderful illustration for us because when you're, a, say, a prophet in the Old Testament and you're seeing, and you're the prophecy that God is showing you, I mean, it's a vision, you're seeing the Messiah you might see his first coming and you see his second coming and to you they look like they're at the same time, roughly. Like when Isaiah's writing Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes in the synagogue at Nazareth, he, he quotes verse 1 and half of verse 2 and then he stops. He doesn't finish verse 2 because verse 2, the second part, is about his second coming. And his second coming, as we know, is at least 2,000 years after his first coming. But Isaiah didn't see that. Isaiah just kept writing. Because Isaiah sees the stars right next to each other. Now, for us, we actually see some distance. But we've talked about this. The distance is elastic, as it is with time. You know, with time with God, 
In other words, if we could determine stuff like this with God's program, like how far away the second advent is from the first advent, how far away is Beetlejuice from Mintaka, right? Uh, then we could make predictions about timing. But my study today is not, our study today is not about timing. It's about the past, the present, and the future. Now, the past is the Garden of Eden. The future is the second coming of Christ. And the now is now. And, of course, you find yourself in the now. That's important to know. Um, and, you know, no matter how far away the past is and how far away the future is, the whole of it is a program of God that is for a purpose. So today we're going to look at the tree of life. There's a tree of life at the end of the Bible. There's a tree of life at the beginning of the Bible. And there's a tree of life in the middle of the Bible. Now, are they all the same? Do they change? Is it different? And, of course, we'll see that, well, you know, there's differences. There's some differences. But the overall purpose of God in what would be, say, for the tree of life is the same. And that's what we have to see. And it's kind of like looking at constellations. So, and, and this should tell us, you know, these things, they're wonderful to look at, and you should just enjoy them. And there's some things about prophecy, and there's some things about the past, and there's some things about the future. that Yeah, you know, it's confusing to us. We can't really put it all together really well. So it's vague, you know. There's parts of it that are quite vague. And that's okay. Enjoy the beauty of it. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to begin. I'm actually going to move to the next verse from yesterday. And let's pray. Let's be thankful and grateful that God has given us such a wonderful plan and a wonderful life. And even though there's so many things that can be confusing to us, we know that God has, who has created the stars and given them, every one of them, a name and knows them all by name and number. Uh, has taken care of our lives just perfectly. So, with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our time, this opportunity for us to be together and to learn and hear your word. We thank you that throughout your word, you just continue to give us an enormous amount of truth. And from that truth, Father, any one of us can grow in grace and knowledge. You have made it this way through your spirit within, through your word, and through the many promises that you give us that give us the courage and ability to forge ahead in your plan without fear, without limitation. The only limits that we put on ourselves are yours. And so, where you tell us to go, we go. Where you tell us to say, we say. Where you tell us to do, we do. And Father, we pray that through your Spirit, our eyes would be enlightened and also that our obedience would increase and our joy would increase to see these wonderful things that you have given us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So when we look, just like the stars here, when we look at the glory of Christ, which we the last two classes have been looking at. Uh, yesterday, marvelous passage, right? In 2 uh, Corinthians three seventeen and 18, uh, through the Spirit there is liberty, and through that liberty we get to look into the mirror that is the glory of Christ, and that glory uh, we see, and that glory becomes a part of us. Uh, so when we look at Christ, and we look at the glory of Christ, we're looking at not just uh, one uh, aspect of him, but every aspect of him. And in Christ there are things old and things new. There are things far away, far away in the past. I mean, he's before all of eternity. And we're also looking at things that are far, far away into the future. And we're also looking at things now. Right now he sits at the right hand of God and indwells our bodies. And so all of this, though, has a fulfillment. And what is that fulfillment? You ever wonder to yourself, what is God really doing in history and in time? I mean, we have busy lives, and when we're getting in, we're busy with doing stuff, we generally, uh, maybe it's a good thing, we don't have a lot of time to be introspective about such sort of metaphysical questions, but, uh, you know, what is God really doing? What is the whole purpose of it all? For uh, some people think that the whole purpose of God is saving mankind. And they're generally of a certain denomination type, that, that that is the end goal of God, is saving mankind. And, you know, uh, without, without thinking much about it, I might agree with that. As you can probably hear in my voice, I don't. Um, and that's because, well, you know, it, first off, is there more to what God is doing than saving mankind? And, by the way, did he fail? Because if his whole goal was saving mankind, is all mankind saved? And since that's not true, uh, maybe we could uh, ponder that God had failed. But it's, it's really not. I mean, is saving mankind a part of it? Absolutely. I came into the world to seek and save those who are lost. But the, uh, the main goal of the whole program is God's glorification. <coughs> God will be glorified. Christ will be glorified. And even in the unbeliever, he's glorified. So, the theme today is though we see the glory of the Lord, we are not yet in heaven. We see the glory of the Lord, but we're not light years. I mean, speak of light years, heaven is somewhere way, 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 way beyond that. I mean, those stars are so far away from us that we couldn't possibly imagine, and there's more, more than that that are farther away. Galaxies farther away. It's immense. Why did God make it so stinking big? Because he's big, I guess. Uh, so, we see the glory of the Lord. We're not in heaven. And so, we have to be patient. I, I, I'm sure it comes across your heart that there are days where you just long for him to come back. Just because you want to see him. You know, also, we long for him to come back when our lives are hard and we want the hard stuff to be over. But I think at times also that we, we long for him to come back just because we're tired of being in this drab world and trying tired of being in this old body. But we have to be patient. 
We're in a suffering world. Thessalonians has showed us this right over and over again. Paul has, in these short little letters, Paul has uh, conveyed much about the suffering of the Thessalonian believers and his own suffering because of their following Christ. So as our passage says here, we have to stand firm and take hold of the truth. While we're looking at the glory of Christ, while that glory is reflecting itself into us and we are beholding it, as we're beholding it, we're becoming more like him. Yet still, we're not in the clear. The Christian life is never going to get uh, superbly easy. What I mean by that, I'm not saying it's going to be hard all the time, but it's never going to come to a point where I no longer have to be diligent, alert, um, reaching ahead, striving, learning, grabbing hold, standing firm, standing high, standing on, you know, wearing my armor and fighting, fighting the good fight of faith. That's never going to stop until we get past those stars when we die. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So they're saved, sanctified by faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. And here's the result, that you may gain the glory. It may gain, is it's not a verb. It says here that you ha- really have gained. It's been given to you. Uh, but the implication is, is that you've got to look at it, right? So that's why I think the English translators are putting in may gain. But it's again, it's not a verb. The word may is not there in the original. It's that you have or obtain uh, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at that for two classes now. We've looked at this obtaining or holding the glory of Christ. You have it so that you can look at it. So that you can behold him. And you behold him through his word and through the spirit. And then the result is in 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. And that, it's a really, it's a neat little thing that Paul does here is that in verse, this word of mouth or letter from us refers back to verse 2 where he warned them, don't be fooled, don't be deceived. The day of the Lord hasn't come. And Paul says, you've heard this from either someone sending you a letter or someone talking to you. But Paul here is talking about traditions now that have come from him. All right? there's, there's other traditions that come from other sources. That's what he referenced in verse 2. He said, I don't know, it was either from a letter or someone spoke to you but someone told you and you believed it that you were in the day of the Lord and you're not. And then he explained why with the apostasy and the Antichrist and all of that. So we see some of the results here now of seeing this glory. And we're going to be looking at the last one. Real quick, we'll look at the middle one. First, the, uh, the praise of his glory in Ephesians 1, 12, and 14. And so this is a natural result. And this, I'd say any believer could evaluate themselves. And I don't mean every moment now, but I mean that you are actually spontaneously because of your experience in the Christian life that you actually praise the Lord. 
This is not anything to do with you saying praise the Lord, though it may be, or putting your hands up in the air or shouting or certainly not flip-flopping on the floor like a a holy roller, okay? So it's not that, but this is an adoration, right? If If you love someone and adore someone, there's going to be a natural result. If you find the Christian life and the Bible boring, then you need to evaluate. Now, look, at some point, sometimes maybe you are going to find the Bible boring. Say that you signed up for the Bible reading program, and then here you are, and here comes Leviticus. You know, you're like, wow, this is exciting. Tell me more about burnt offerings, please. You know, like, uh, yeah, not that exciting. But as time goes on, you, you should have an appreciation. That's what we're all we're talking about here is the praise of the Lord is an appreciation for who he is and what he's done. And if you don't, if a believer doesn't have that, he's missing something. He or she is missing something. And you should evaluate that. Just do that between you and God. Turn to his word. Search for it. So let's see that one real quick. Go to Ephesians 1.3. I'm going to read the whole sentence and read it fast. It's like one sentence that you could spend a year studying. Verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians 1 is one long sentence. Paul would have gotten an F in English class if he turned in this paper for a run-on. But Paul does this a lot. He does it a lot. So, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You see praise there in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable for the fullness of times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. It's a completeness of everything in Christ. In him also we have obtained an inheritance where heirs, it means we're members of the family, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also have, after listening to the message of the truth, the truth of your, sorry, the gospel of your salvation, which Paul just mentioned in our passage. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So in verses 12 and 14, the phrase to the praise of his glory is mentioned twice. And in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And all of this one sentence is a summary. It's a complete summary of the gifts that God has given to mankind who has fallen. To fallen mankind. Because in verse 7, the redemption is the forgiveness of all sin. So this is not what was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what is given to the enemy of God. And here it is summarized. 
what have we seen here? We're blessed according to the new covenant, elected, predestined, adopted, redeemed. We are forgiven of all sin, blessed with the knowledge of the mystery of his will, given an inheritance, eternally members of the family. And from these, all emanating from Christ, as we look upon them, we praise his glory. Right? Why do we have this? His glory. That's what it's all about. So when you're looking into the mirror of God's word, you're not seeing your glory. You are seeing your salvation, correct? But we don't see here Paul saying that we praise our salvation. We praise his glory. God has done this. And I, you know, I'm... I think all of us, the more that we learn of him, the more we are fascinated and at the same time somewhat more puzzled. How could he do this? How, how is he what he is? And there's nothing wrong is when you ask those, because some people are afraid to ask themselves those questions and they hold themselves back in my opinion. Because when you, when you think about the magnificence of Christ, it has to be naturally that some doubt leaks into your mind and say, could this possibly be? And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Paul writes in Romans 8 that I have become convinced that nothing will separate us from the love of God. To become convinced means that there's a progress or a, a procession of understanding. There's nothing wrong with looking at this and saying, how can this be? Or as the psalmist says, I can't remember what psalm, but he says, these things are too wonderful to me for me to understand. But this is true. So with all of this in your wheelhouse, what I just said, you're blessed according to the new covenant, elected, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven of all sin, blessed with the knowledge of the mystery of his will. You can know the mystery of God's will, given an inheritance, Uh, this should be pretty easy, right? The whole thing should be easy. It should be clear sailing through life. Incredible joy, hope, vigor, no problems whatsoever. However, we know, and we see it in Thessalonians, we see it in many places, that we suffer. Uh, The world around us made up of those who are not free, they persecute those who are free. The world around us is filled with systems and institutions that have been incorporated by those who are greedy and selfish and not free. And they don't care about other people. And they create things that cause misery. Plus, not only are we persecuted and suffering at the hands of others, but we have our own flesh that tempts us. As Paul says, it has passions and desires and that the flesh wars with the spirit. And so you've got your body to deal with, the sin nature that's within. And we also know, I mean, who here hasn't crumbled under the pressure? At some point, have fallen apart. Maybe it's happened recently. Maybe it'll happen again. But the pressure, you've seen Christ, you know the scripture, but the pressure has crushed you. And I think it makes me think of Second Corinthians chapter four, where Paul says, "Yeah, we are perplexed, we are despairing, or we're not despairing, but we're we're confused. You know, we suffer for His namesake, and at times it gets quite hard. 
And this leads me to think of Joshua. Joshua, this great man, great general, great leader, and he's given great promises. Go to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Joshua. We just read a bunch of, in Ephesians 1, promises. Redeemed, elected, sanctified. Oh no, we didn't say the word sanctified, but it's, it's in there. Um, adopted, elected, and inherit, having an inheritance. And Joshua has given some tremendous promises here. Joshua 1.1. 1, 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying. So, he's speaking to him. I mean, not only is Joshua given promises, but they come right directly from the mouth of the Lord. Moses, my, is what God says to him in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, that's up in uh, Asia Minor, and as far as the great sea, the Mediterranean Sea, towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. I mean, those are amazing promises. We get the same thing. And then he says in verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all that the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Well, now it seems conditional, doesn't it? There's the promise at the first, wherever your foot goes, you will conquer. But then he says, well, you better keep the law or you won't be successful. And so what we have here is a promise and actually a prophecy that is conditional. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. All right, it's a mixture of permanence and also condition. Now, you and I can, we have these promises. God is never going to forsake us. We have eternity. We have eternal life. We have this glory of Christ to look upon. And Joshua is elected, promised land. No one will stand before them, before Israel, that God would never forsake him. But at the same time, then God says, be strong and courageous and be careful to do the right thing. Be strong. Be courageous. Be careful. See, if I just stuck to Ephesians 1 and didn't read the rest of the letter, then I'd be like, perfect. See you, God. 
you know, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm redeemed. I'm elected. I'm an heir. I'm, I'm predestined. I've been shown your will. I've been sealed by the Spirit. I have my inheritance. Can't wait till I die and I see it all. And, and it's not, of course, you're not going to lose your salvation no matter what you do. But what is, what is here is the enjoyment, the experience, and the, the desire, which should be in every believer, to when they look at the glory of the Lord to be changed. And Joshua's, though he's got all these promises, it's not going to be easy. This is my picture of Jericho. Well, I didn't paint it. You know, somebody else did. All right? They got to march out there. Like Jericho is the first city. Now, if you remember, you may remember where the second city is. The second, they conquered Jericho, no problem. But when uh, there's one guy, his name's Achan, I guess you pronounce it. I always called him Achan. A-C-H-A-N. Achan who takes something. They were, to put, they were to put Jericho under the ban. The ban means everything gets destroyed. The only people who were survived was Rahab and her family. But Achan takes some clothes and some gold, and he hides it in his tent. And then they go to take the next city, which should be a breeze, nothing compared to Jericho, the city of Ai, called Ai, not artificial intelligence, but it's called I, and they lose. They lose bad. And it, God reveals to Joshua that someone broke the law. So you see, his promise to Joshua is for real here. I'm going to be with you. But if you don't do this according to my way, you will not be successful. And this is true of our lives. Though we're looking into the mirror of the Word of God, though we're looking into the glory of Christ, and that glory is reflecting back to us, uh, we're not in heaven yet. We're not millions and billions of light years away. And we're not in the Garden of Eden. Here we are stuck in the midst of the old and the new. I mean, we're new, but there's a not yet aspect to the promises of God for us. We're seated with Him in heavenly places. We're just not there yet. So, it still won't be easy. It still won't be easy. So as we saw uh, yesterday, where James told us, don't look into the mirror of the Word of God and then turn away forgetting what you saw. And what he likened that to was being a hearer and not a doer. Right? So Joshua, same thing. He could hear all of this and say, yeah, sounds great, Lord, and then not do it. But he did. Joshua did. And he, after I, after this, that was the only battle he lost because he never, nothing like that ever happened again. Especially after all the people stood around and saw what happened to Achan and his family. They were disciplined in front of everybody. Now, there's another exhortation from God here that we must not miss to Joshua. I mean, on top of be strong and courageous. There's this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Notice this phrase. 
You will meditate on it day and night. What? The book of the law. It shall not depart from your mouth. Right? So a person, and not you guys, you're fully trained in this, but a person can say, all right, I'm going to look at the glory of Christ and basically what I'm going to do is, I don't know, imagine Him or I'm going to pray a lot, which is, both of those things are great. Do those. But if you're neglecting God's Word, if you're neglecting the content of the Word of God, you are not looking at the glory of Christ. And you will not be changed. Go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 1. Now keep in mind that God said to Joshua, You shall meditate on that law day and night. Now look at Psalm 1 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's the same same exact words that God said to Joshua. Who is this? This is the blessed man. The man who is blessed. What does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord. He loves it. Right? We talked about praise. This delighting. This is praise. Anybody can shove their hands up in the air and sing some songs. But do you love God's word? Does it speak to you as God speaks to you? Now, here's a great thing about the Psalms. Think of a playlist. I wonder if you have a playlist <laughs> for an older congregation. <laughs> I don't know. They're like a playlist. What is the heck is that? All right. Well, uh, a lot of people have playlists. They're song lists. Uh, I have some on my phone. So I have like uh, a workout playlist on my phone. And then I have um, on my computer, I have a studying playlist. I have a few of those, all background music that, you know, helps me, helps, helps my brain and uh, doesn't distract me. Uh, you might send a playlist of songs to someone you love. You might have a playlist for working out. You might have a playlist for cleaning your house. You could have a playlist for just hanging out, reading a book. Maybe some, I don't know, instrumental music or something. But there's something about a playlist. And actually, when I, I thought about this when I read uh, American Sniper about Chris Kyle. He, he mentions in his book that he had a playlist that they played in the Humvee right when he rolled up on an enemy uh, target to blast that target. And in the book, he said this was really good workout music. So I thought, oh, cool. And I went on YouTube and checked out the music he listens to. <laughs> I couldn't even listen to it. But uh, anyway, for him, uh, clearing a house full of bad guys, they would listen to this. The whole the group of them would listen to this this rough music before they went in. That was his playlist for that. Anyway, you know what you know what I mean, all right? You get the idea. A playlist is a set of songs. It's not every song, but it's a particular set of songs that have a theme. Whether it's romance, whether it's working out, you want to get yourself energized, whether you want to keep your, yourself calm. In the, we know from 
not just the scripture, but from uh, stuff written for Israel, like Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that, we know that there are more hymns and songs and prayers that were written than there are in the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms. Now think, Israel was a nation of priests writing psalms and prayers for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they get into the promised land around 1300, they're destroyed in 500. So we're like 800 years of songwriting. There's going to be way more than 150. My point, God picked 150 songs, prayers, and he made them his playlist. The Psalms are his playlist. Now, what would be cool, because again, every playlist has a theme. What would be cool if we knew the theme? Why did God pick these 150? Why did he leave out God knows how many hundreds more? And we're pretty sure that Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to the whole Psalter. Because Psalm 1 and 2 are different from all the rest. Not to mention they're at the front. But they're also not prayers. They're not prayers. You don't see it. They're not praise. They're not lamentation. They're not exaltation. They're really fact. Right? They're, they're fact, but they're poems. They're definitely poetry. So Psalm 1 and 2 tell us the theme of God's playlist. And that's awesome. Why would God pick his songs? Why would God pick these prayers? Because of Psalm 1 and 2 tells us why. So with this in mind, knowing that this is God's playlist, 148, there's 150 psalms, take the first two out. You have 148 prayers or songs that are based upon both of these. And the first one is who's blessed and who's not. And why? Psalm 1 is about who is blessed and who is wicked. And why are they? And we're going to just focus on who's blessed. He meditates on his law. In his law, he meditates day and night. Now, Throughout the Psalms, how many times do you think you're going to find in the other 148 Psalms a praise of God for his word or a lamentation because I didn't follow the word? Over and over in all kinds of different circumstances in which there's heartache in people and then there's praise of God in it and then there's you know, uh, there's psalms that are called ascension psalms. Who's, who's able to walk up the hill of the Lord? You know, who's able to be in his house? And it all comes back to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. We'll get to Psalm 2 in a second. So after he meditates on his law day and night, and look at verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. What is this leaf that doesn't wither? It's someone 
Actually, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 would tell us that this is the tree that trusts in the Lord, whose roots go under the ground and flow to the stream. And even when the heat comes and the the winds come and the desert comes and all of that nastiness comes, it still produces fruit. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. Firmly planted by streams of water. Now, Keep this firmly planted. There's a couple themes here today. Meditate. First, be strong and courageous. Meditate on the law day and night. But where did we start? Looking at the glory of the Lord. What am I looking at? Far away? In the past? Far away in the future? I'm looking at now? Those stars look like they're sometimes right next to each other. Sometimes they're so, I, I realize they're so far apart. And here we go all the way back. Because in our main passage, it says, stand firm. Well, what was the first instance in the scripture, in the history of mankind, where they had something that was the firmness of life? And it was the tree of life. Stand firm. It's like the tree of life. But notice Psalm 1 3. Again, this firmly planted tree by streams of water. And this strikes this very image. Go to Genesis 2.9. We've got passages that are easy to go to today. You're going to go to Genesis and then to Revelation. Because the tree of life is in both. See, now we're, now we're looking at the glory of Christ and we're going all the way back to the beginning of time. We say, well, what, I, I'm, I'm not in the garden. What does this have to do with me? You just saw it. That you and I, looking at the glory of Christ, not turning away, as James said. Not, I mean, what I'm going to see in that mirror is going to be painful. I'm going to see what's wrong with me. And there's a lot more than I know. And I'm going to see that. And I'm going to have the choice. I can let God fix these things in me. Or I can just turn away because it's too shameful and my pride won't let me look. But with humility, and boy, does God know how to break our pride. With humility, he's going to say, look, you, yes, you, I can change you. I, I don't, I'm not going to revamp you. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to cure you. And I mean in real time. See, getting back to those stars, people get sometimes confused. And they say, well, look, at salvation, God already fixed me. Yet yeah, that's true. It's called position. You're sanctified. You're holy. You're blameless. Yes, you're clean. But what about an experience? Is that true? Is who you are in Christ true about your behavior and your conduct and your thinking and your speech? Do you control yourself? Do you control your life through the Spirit of God and His Word? Are you strong and courageous? That's a different matter, isn't it? What God wants to do in time, I say, well, well, but you don't understand, that's in the future. <laughs> that's the far, far, far away star, whatever his name was, Mistaka, or whoever his name, we'll call him Mufasa. That star, that was far, far away. You know, when in heaven I'll be like that. And that is also true. It's also true. But what about now in time? 
And see, why are we, we find, and I know why we're doing this, is because we want to live our lifestyles the way we want to in independence from God, is that we're taking the faraway past and the faraway future and saying that, you know, let's not unite them together in my life now. But you see, you can't look into the mirror of the glory of Christ and do that. You say, well, I look into his mirror and I see heaven. You do, that's true. You also see the Garden of Eden. But you also see everything in between. But here we are, the tree of life, Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused every... Sorry, jumped ahead. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers. We see in Psalm 1 a description of the blessed man or woman who meditates on the word of God day and night, who therefore, in moving in our study, looks into the mirror of the word of God and sees the glory of Christ and doesn't turn away and becomes this effectual doer, as, Paul, as uh, James said, not just a hearer. And they become, as Psalm 1 said, God's theme of his playlist is that we now in time be this firmly planted tree a tree of life but for us a tree of eternal life that is never lost it's actually better than that tree because god isn't bringing us back there now some some uh some author i read once has said it's a long, long walk back to Eden. You know, it's a great way of depicting our sinfulness. When people try to be perfect, it's a long walk back to Eden. God's not taking us back to Eden. He's taking us somewhere better. <clears throat> the tree of life, what is it? It's the source of God's life to man and woman. When we fell, they were cut off from it. Seraphim or a seraphim? No, they're cherubim, aren't they? Cherubim? Angels? I'll just say angels. Cover myself. They're set at the east gate with their flashing swords. No one's getting in. Uh, as God said, we have to cut man off so he doesn't eat from the tree of life. And then we find in Proverbs 3.18, she, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. You see that phrase, hold her fast? I know you see it. We're to stand firm and hold to the traditions. It's the same, it's not the exact same word, but it's just, it means the same thing. Hold fast. Hold her. Wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. All right? Blessed is the man who doesn't sit. See, if you have the fear of the Lord, as Psalm 1 says, you don't sit in the seat of scoffers. <laughs> you know, if you know the Lord, you're going to scoff the truth? I don't think so. Even if some nasty neuron in my brain that wants to sin is going to say, hey, make fun of God. Uh -uh. I'm not going to get smashed. Plus, I love him. I may be in my, you know, you could be in a real bad mood, but 
I don't know about that. Doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Right? A firmly planted tree, but we also have in Psalm 1 the, the image of someone standing, but not firmly planted by the garden, but in wisdom, but planted with standing among the path of sinners. So in time, here we have the tree of life again. And in uh, Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. <clears throat> and we see in Psalm 1 that even in heat and drought or whatever, we're producing fruit. This is God's playlist. This is God's theme for us throughout Scripture. So we find here with the tree of life, uh, and also with um, you know this glory of Christ that we're looking at, we have a, a past, present, and a future. And we have what which some prophecy has to it is an already, not yet principle. That I can take from this tree of life now. What is it? Wisdom? Oh, yeah. From his word. I look into that word. Don't turn away. If you do, you'll produce fruit and you'll stand firm. Because I'm not there yet. When, the, when Christ returns and I see him in his glory... Am I going to really have to stand firm? I'm going to just do it naturally, aren't I? Am I really going to have to fight the good fight of faith? The fight is over. But now, it's not. I have to be patient. I have to take hold of something. I have to stand firm in something. And it ain't going to be easy all the time. You know, when we're being crushed and we feel that it is not easy, that's when it takes endurance. The endurance is, I'm going to do what the Word of God tells me to do. I'm going to strive to do it the best that I can, and it doesn't matter how I feel about it. I may not feel like it at all, but I'm going to. And that's endurance. And it's at those times that you will see things about God that you won't ever see at other times. It's when it's hard and you want to quit and when it's, it's wearisome. I mean, how many times do we hear this, don't grow weary and lose heart? Because, you know, God's like, when you're weary and you don't want to do it and things look dull and all you want is the Lord to come back. And he's going to say, keep going, keep looking, because you're going to see something that if you turn away now, you may never see it again. I mean, I'll put you in the situation where you get weary again. But if you don't endure when you're weary and do my will when you don't want to and it's hard and you're suffering, then if you every time that happens, you turn away from me and go to your own thing that anesthetizes your life or whatever it is, then you're never going to see that. There's going to be an aspect of me in this life that you're never going to see. You really want that. All right, Revelation 2. All the way to the back. Got to hurry up. So God's not bringing us back to Eden. You say, so I'm, like, I'm going back to the tree of life? Yes, but it's in a different place. 
So it's people say, well, it's a different tree of life. Oh, forget that stuff. That you, you're getting too brainiac-y. The theologians do it all the time. Too much. The tree of life is a tree of life. Just because God puts it in a different place, that's not the issue. The theme of this tree is God's life. So look at Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We have to leave for now for the sake of time what it means he who overcomes. Some think that it's all believers and some think that it's mature believers. Sorry to leave that uh, unresolved for you, but go to Revelation 22, verse 1. 22.1, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There were no longer any curse, no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and there will no and they will ha- not have need of light or a lamp for the light of the sun, nor the light of the sun, sorry, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, to me, in the context, I've read through Revelation a number of times, that this is all believers, to me. Now, someone could disagree with me, and I don't, I don't really care. But, to me, this is all believers. I didn't see any member of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, being separated from this place. So, do you see where he's bringing us? So this, when I'm looking into the glory of Christ through his word, I'm seeing this as well. This is the faraway star. And then there's the nearby star. And there's the other faraway star that's in the Garden of Eden. But is it a mistake? Is it a coincidence that God has the tree of life in the garden when we start and in heaven when we end? And while we're here longing for one and wondering what the heck happened in the past... And why we're so stupid, right? When you're looking at Adam and the woman enjoying this, well, it, it's a Kincaid. That's a Kincaid, by the way. Doesn't it look like it? I'm sure there's about a, a puzzle out there that that you could make. That I mean, a jigsaw puzzle that would be that. But whatever, it's better than that. But you know, they left this place willfully because they bought a lie. They were deceived. Eat of it, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And she gave to her husband, and he ate. We're like, Adam, what in the heck is wrong with you? And then God comes into the garden. They blamed each other. They blamed God. And they were banished. And banished to what? A curse. But as they were banished right there, right in the beginning, Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangel, the first evangelistic message. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel, the seed of the woman. That's all we know of him at that point, is that he's the seed of the woman and that he will crush the serpent. 
in time, we have the tree of life now. And so we've got to stand firm. While we look forward, go to verse 14. We look forward to this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Oh my God, won't it be marvelous. This city in a new heavens and a new earth. No sun. Don't need it. The sun himself, S-O-N, lights up the whole place. So we are to behold his glory I didn't have time to get to Psalm 2, but Psalm 2, at the end of it, says, kiss the sun. Um, the sun, S-O-N. Uh, or do homage. It's really, kiss is better. It just sounds better. It's King James. Uh, but in, in Hebrew, it would refer to that, is to honor the sun and kiss the sun. Um, we're to behold his glory. Psalm 2 is the other part of the introduction to God's playlist. What is the theme? Be that one who looks at the Lord and who fears the Lord and who looks into the glory of the Lord and doesn't turn away. Because it's been given to you. You're saved and sanctified. And then when you do that, be this one who stands fast because you're not in heaven yet and there's going to be problems. There's going to be, and you're going to face them. I'm going to face them. There's no point in us crybabying about it, although we will. But we will, we are called to suffer. We are called to be persecuted. It's going to be hard. But keep looking at him and you will bear fruit even in the times when it's desert-like in your life. And that's a theme that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We've seen it here today. And Christ is coming back soon. That's the other part of this, the future. Like, say, well, this faraway star, how far away is it? 1,300 light years away. Oh, man, how long? i got to wait forever for the Lord to come back. He could come back at any second. I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, says Paul. And you know what he says right after that? Be steadfast and immovable. That's how he closes that paragraph. In the twinkling of an eye, we could be out of here. But until then, Paul says, be steadfast and immovable. Be that planted tree. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for from the whole thing, from Genesis to Revelation as we see, what marvelous truths you have for us that we contemplate. But also, Father, while we're, we're glorying in either the past or the future, that we make sure that we remember that in time we must stand firm and take hold of the truth. Guide us, Father. Open our eyes to it. In Christ's name, amen.